All right, we are still in the book of Acts, and we are in chapter 17. We've been going through the entire book of Acts. It's taken us quite a while, uh, but we're in chapter 17 now. We're in the last half of that, and today we're going to talk about Paul in Athens. Now, this is a great city in Greece, and um, so uh, as you remember, this is Paul's second missionary journey. He's started one missionary journey, and he kind of did a lap around uh, you know, the Mediterranean a little bit, and now this is his second missionary journey. And we're going to talk about him in this city of Athens. I want you to just see kind of where this is. Uh, if you remember, this is his second missionary journey. He started here in Antioch, and he went here through uh, this region of Galatia, and he was, his goal was to go north into, into Asia. And God stopped him from doing that. And there, he had a vision of a man in Macedonia, Paul did, of a man in Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. And so from Troas, they set sail, and they got over here to Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. Last week, we finished there in Thessalonica and Berea. And if you remember, uh, there's kind of a, a, a history of what's been going on in every city. He goes into the synagogue to speak with the Jews about Christ, uh, and he gets some persecution. He goes and he talks to the Gentiles in the same city about Christ. He gets more persecution. And, and about the time he gets to the place where he's going to be killed, uh, his team kind of moves him away, not because they're trying to protect him from the persecution, but because they want to get him to the next city to proclaim the gospel. In fact, we're going to see uh, later throughout the New Testament that in many of these cities, there are great churches that have sprung up and been planted uh, by Paul. Uh, but, but now, he's gotten down here to Athens. When they left Berea, he left his team behind. And so he traveled alone down here to Athens. And so he's right here in the southernmost part uh, of Greece. And so let's pick up there uh, in chapter 17. And what we see first happening is Paul's spirit is stirred by the city of Athens. Look what it says in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them, his team to arrive, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now when you first read that, you might get the impression uh, that he's mad, but he's not. We'll get back to that in a second. I want to talk just a second about Athens. Okay, it, was, it was a great city of learning and philosophy. I mean, uh, the greatest uh, learned men would go and spend time in Athens. It had more idols than the rest of Greece all put together. It's kind of like driving in Kansas City and seeing fountains. I mean, you, you know, uh, you, you, you can't walk down the street hardly anywhere without seeing a fountain. And in a lot of streets, if you walk two or three blocks, you've seen ten fountains. It was kind of the same way in the city of Athens with idols. They were everywhere. There were more in this city than in the entire nation of Greece. Uh, it is interesting I think it's an interesting fact to kind of put these together. Where human knowledge flourished, idolatry most abounded. Now think about that. Where people were the smartest was the city where there was the most idol worship. The greatest seekers of wisdom were the greatest slaves to idols. Paul's spirit was moved, but it wasn't moved out of anger or frustration. He wasn't seeing all the idols and saying, oh, you guys stink, what is wrong with you, what do you think? He wasn't that at all. He saw these idols and he was moved by compassion in his heart. And he thought, what a terrible thing. What a terrible thing that these people's lives are so caught up in this idolatry. He had compassion for the eternal souls of the people in Athens. He wasn't stirred with anger or rage but love and concern for them. 
And so we see here that Paul was really stirred up in his heart about this city of Athens. The next thing we see is that Paul reasoned with all that would listen. This is common to Paul. He's like, anybody who will listen to me, I'm going to talk to them about Jesus. If they'll just listen for a little bit, I'll talk to them about Jesus. Look what it says in verses 17 and 18. It says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now it's interesting, uh, uh, when Paul gets to the place, and by the way, Paul was a very learned man, very learned, very educated man. When he gets to the place that was the central hub in this area of, of learning and education and formal education, he focused on two things. Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus and the resurrection. He didn't debate about predestination. He didn't debate about all of the questions in life that can't be answered. He talked about two things, Jesus and the resurrection. Now we see in this passage that he talked to anybody who would listen about this good news of Jesus Christ. He talked to the devout Jews in the synagogue. He went there and talked to them. He talked to the pagans on the street. It says, and he went place and basically anybody that would listen he talked to he reasoned with the epicureans and the epicureans were a group of uh, worshipers of self they basically devoted themselves to sensual enjoyment i mean that's what they it was their philosophy of life their philosophy was eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we die so let's just live for today let's just live for today and do it all it also says that he reasoned with the stoics These people believe that man can be good by his own nature and reach a level plane with God by just by being good, which is the absolute contrary contradiction of the gospel. You know, some of them, it says they mocked him as a babbler. And this word babbler basically means like a chicken going around picking up grains of corn or something. They're here, they're there, they're just just all over the place. He's just a babbler. But others believed he was preaching a new God that they found a great interest in. Now, I think this is interesting. With all of these gods, with all of these idols throughout the entire city, these people were still seeking. And that leads to one conclusion, folks, that their current understanding was not good enough. Now, think about this. When you lose something and you start looking for it, where is it? In the last place you look. Why is it in the last place you look? Because you stop looking, right? Now think about this. These guys had more idols than anybody. Idols for this God and that God and this God and that God and this God and that God. But as soon as somebody had a new idea, they said, oh, we want to hear, we want to hear. Why were they so anxious to hear something new? Because the current gods had not filled the void in their hearts. That's why. They were still seeking They were still looking for answers because the false gods that they worshipped had given them none. We see that Athens was full of seekers of truth. Some were truly seeking the truth. Now, some weren't. But some were seeking the truth. Look in verses 19 through 23. It says, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, which I think sounds like a dinosaur, uh, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? 
For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now that's interesting. By the way, here's the Areopagus. It's not a dinosaur. It's a, it's a great uh, uh, stadium. It's actually on Mars Hill. In fact, some of your scriptures might even say uh, Paul spoke on Mars Hill. But it was a public forum where magistrates met about public business and where learned philosophers met to communicate their thoughts and notions. In fact, there were people here almost nonstop all the time, sharing their philosophies and thoughts. These people were inquisitive about Paul's doctrine because they worshipped knowledge, but not because it was right, but because they wanted to hear him because he was new, not because he was right. And these people worshipped knowledge. Now listen, folks, there's nothing wrong with gaining knowledge. Now, there's nothing wrong uh, with a college education, a master's degree, a PhD, nothing wrong with any of that. But it's like anything else. If you begin to worship that, that becomes an idol. And these people worshipped ideas and thoughts and philosophies rather than the one who created the universe. Paul talks to them and he says, hey, I noticed one of the, uh, of the idols and it had an interesting inscription on it. It says, to the unknown God. So we've got one to this God and that God and this God and that God and this God and that God. And we can't think of them all. So we'll just put this one up. And it says, to the unknown God. And Paul says to him, you guys have an idol to this God you don't know. But I'm here to tell you about the God you don't know. I'm here to open your eyes I'm here to give you some insight that you don't currently have about this God you don't know. And so Paul preaches about the one true God. Look in verses 24 through 29. Listen to the things that Paul says to them. Remember, these people have been worshiping idols that they've made with their hands. And now Paul begins to describe the one true God. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Now that's a lot of, a lot of words there, but let me just help, uh, help you see what he was saying. Paul describes the one true God, their unknown God. And he said, first of all, God made us. 
We can't make him with human hands. He made us. We can't make him if he made us. And he did. He says, because God made the world, he's Lord over the world. He gets to control it because he made it. He said, God gives us life and breath and an eternal soul. He says, you think he's far away, but he's not. He's real close by. He's right here. He's closer than you think, folks. He said, we have a constant dependence on him. He said, in him, we live and we move and we have our being. Folks, the reality is, it's because of God that we even live. It's because of God that we are able to move. It's because of God that we have a being at all. And then Paul speaks to them about the absurdity of trying to confine the creator of the universe into an image made out of wood or gold or silver. It's like, how absurd is that? You want to take this God that is so vast, he made everything. He even made us. He controls everything. And you want to put him in a little box and have him here as, a, as an idol, made out of some stuff that we can do with our own hands. Doesn't that sound absurd? He's trying to help them see that. He wants them to know the one true God. But he doesn't stop there. He then preaches to them about the gospel of Jesus, God's son. In verses 30 and 31, he says this. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul preaches Jesus. What he says is, hey, listen, there were some times in the past where God showed his patience and his long-suffering for Gentiles because of their true ignorance of God. They were truly ignorant of God, so God was just patient with them. He said, "But, but now, guys, it's different. Now it's different. God commands everyone to repent from their sinfulness. What is repentance? The word repent means to turn and go the other direction. So if I'm walking this direction, I don't stop. I don't even turn around. But I stop, turn around, and go the other way. That's repentance. And so what it's saying is, hey, listen, I was going this way, doing my own thing, my own way, my own time, and I want to stop and turn around and go the other direction, God's way, God's timing, God's methods. He says, because, why do you want to do that? Because there's a day of judgment coming. Listen, folks, uh, uh, there is a day coming when every human being will stand before God, the one true holy God. And Paul wanted them to understand that. He says, listen, Jesus Christ confirmed he was the Messiah, the one who will sit in judgment because he was raised from the dead and defeated death, hell, and the grave. Now, folks, Listen, I, 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 I like philosophy. I, I like to read philosophy. I like, I like to know how people's brains think and how, they, how they're wired. I like all that kind of stuff. But listen, I, I'm, I'm a pretty simple guy. If somebody, by his own power, raises from the dead, I, I just believe everything he says. I, I mean, are you guys with me? I mean, if I mean, somebody, by his own ability is able to raise himself from being killed, being dead, being, I mean, doornail dead, folks, three days dead. If you can raise himself up after that, 
I don't know about you, but I'm going to buy everything he says. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, guys, he, he confirmed that he was the Messiah. He confirmed that he was the Son of God by being raised from the dead. Folks, this is the good news. We call the good news the gospel. It's that Jesus died for our sins. And by the way, we'll come back to this in just a minute. Let's finish up here, and then we'll come back to that. Last thing I want you to see in this passage is, is that faced with the truth, some believe and some do not. Look in verses 32 through 34. It says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Joe, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. I've tried to say that thing 50 times this week, and I just call him Joe. I hope that's okay with you. He doesn't mind. Listen, what I want you to see here, folks, is something very important. Paul shares the gospel with these people. Everybody hears the same thing. Everybody gets the same information. And some people respond well, and some do not. Some will mock him. It says they did. They mocked him. They said, Paul, you're an idiot. You think this guy Jesus rose from the dead? You're a bonehead. You're an idiot. You're stupid. How could you ever possibly think something like that? So they start mocking him. But others, it said, not only believed, but they began to follow him. They left their lives and began to follow with Paul and minister with him. Folks, this is what we'll experience too. So what are the application takeaways for today? Uh, what are, in every sermon, I want to just say, hey, here's some things that we can learn from this. Here are some things that we can really uh, uh, gain as information. Now, I'm a visual learner, and so things are always better to me if I can do something visual, okay? And here's the first application takeaway. If you are a seeker of truth, believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I've got some things up here to help us. I know some, uh, somebody in the first service said, hey, are you making moonshine today? Or what? I'm not, We're not doing that. We don't encourage you to make moonshine at church. Well, or anywhere else, okay? So, that's, so not, we're not encouraging that. But I do want you to see kind of a visual of the gospel, a, a visual understanding of how this really works. This is going to represent God. And as you can see, he's pure and holy. He's without any kind of spot He's without any kind of dirt at all because he's holy. But the reality is, we are not holy. We are sinners. And so every time uh, that we commit a sin, uh, you know, like for instance, being disobedient to our parents, or lying, or being selfish, we've committed these things and we've gotten dirty. And our lives are kind of messed up like this. Now, the reality is we are all sinners. The Bible says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. And what that means, folks, is that, look, let's just be honest. None of us are like God. None of us are pure and holy. We, we've all done wrong things. Now, we can try to do the right things, but, but we, the reality is we've done wrong things in our lives. And the other thing we need to uh, understand is we cannot solve our sin problem. Now, here's what we usually do. We go, hey, I'm kind of dirty and ugly, but I'm not as bad as this guy. <laughs> In comparison, I'm pretty good. I mean, I'm a little better, right? I'm not as dark and crooked and mean and ugly and sinful as this dude. 
Or we think like this, you know, I think what I'll do to get rid of that ugliness in my life is I'll do a bunch of really good things. And so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do some really pure, uh, uh, really great and wonderful righteous things. And it will change everything. Problem is, it doesn't change anything. We can try uh, our best to do a few more good things and take away that sinfulness, but it, it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. Well, the Bible says that Jesus died on the cross in payment for our sins. John 3.16, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever would put their faith and trust in him uh, would have eternal life. And so Jesus comes to earth, and he lives a completely perfect life. No sin, no spot, no blemish. And he willingly goes to the cross to die for our salvation. He willingly goes to the cross even though he deserved no punishment at all because he's just like God. He's God's son. And what the Bible talks about there and what Paul was referring to is that by repenting and putting our faith in Jesus, our sins are forgiven. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me put that in plain English for you. What that means is, God, Jesus came and lived a perfect life. We are ugly, dirty sinners. And what God did was to say, I'm going to offer you an exchange. I'm going to offer you an exchange. And so he's saying, if you will let me, I will take credit for your sinful life, and I will give you credit for my perfect life. You know, I always think of exchange students when I do that. You know, uh, Kendall Hale's here today and brought his uh, tennis teams from UMKC. Glad you guys are our guests today, by the way. But this kind of an exchange program. What it means is, is, is instead of us having to face God and be all dirty and filthy and God say, I can't let you stay in heaven. Look at you. You'll pollute the whole place. I can't leave you here. Instead of being like that, Jesus says, listen, I'll trade places with you. If you'll give me your sinful life, I'll give you my perfection. And then when we go to be with God, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Jesus' life in us. Doesn't mean when we give our lives to Jesus, we continue to live a perfect life. But what it means is even if I keep adding dirt to this, Jesus still gives me credit for his perfect life. Folks, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. If you're here today, and you are a seeker of truth at all, and you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you today before you leave here, you need to do that. You need to do that. It not only affects your life here on this planet, but it affects your life in eternity. You know, uh, uh, Linda Gleason is going to be facing eternity within just a few weeks. And Linda knows because of giving her life to Christ, she knows for sure that she'll be in heaven with him. It's not speculation. It's not a mere hope. It's a fact because God's word is true. The last thing I want to share with you today is this. When you share the truth like Paul, realize, realize that some will believe and some will not. It's not our responsibility to change a person's heart because we can't do that. We don't have the ability to change anybody's heart. 
Only God can do that. What is our responsibility is to make him known. What is our responsibility is to do what Paul did and say, hey guys, here's what Jesus did for you. Here's the gospel. And some believed and some didn't. And it's going to be the same way with us, folks. It's going to be the same way with us. I want Brian and Gretchen and Casey to come. And and we don't do this a a lot or or, or all Sundays, but um, uh, this morning I want to give you just an opportunity to respond to this. If you're here today and and you would say, you know, Michael, I I really uh, have never given my life to Christ. And by the way, all that is, is, the, the method of doing that is just simply a prayer and saying, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I can't do anything to overcome that sin on my own. I believe Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins. And so I give him my life. I want to exchange. I want to exchange. I accept what he did for me. It's like a gift. You know, if I gave you my cell phone, but you left it here today and went on your way, this really wouldn't be yours. Could you just leave it laying here on the, on the uh, uh, pulpit here or not on the uh, stage? But it's not yours until you pick it up and take it. It's the same way with the gospel. Jesus died for everyone, but it's only available to those who would pick it up and who would say, I I want that. I accept that as a gift. So I'd like for you to just close your eyes where you are. And I want you to think about your life this morning. Listen, folks. Paul was so right. Our lives are in God's hands. We have no idea what's going to happen this week. Any one of us could go to the doctor and get the kind of news that Linda got. Be tragic, tragic, but it's reality. Folks, I don't want you to leave here today and not know what would happen to you. I don't want you to leave here today and still try to do life on your own. I want you to do life with Jesus because he's, he loves you. God created everything. He knows how the world works and he wants to help you, but he won't force himself on anybody. He wants to help you. He's reaching out to you. We sang about that earlier today. He's reaching out to us saying, won't you give me your life? I gave you my life. Won't you give me yours? 